David, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Why don't we get started? If you could maybe give the audience a brief intro of who you are and we can take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. David Durr, Capstone Apartment Partners in Oklahoma City, apartment broker, go into all that, but got me into this. Or I started out the first back up before I went into the Marine Corps, right? And so spent seven and a half years active duty plus reserves. Did that to pay for college, right? Is the main thing. Was I was in college, I started to just, and it was back in the early 2000s and mortgage market was crazy, isn't good. I remember doing negative AM loans, and like where people didn't make the, their balance goes as you think about it, just for Did that for a while, really liked it. I uh, lived in California doing it, then moved back to Oklahoma, had my daughter move back to one of my family's here. And I saw an ad in the paper said, recent college grads for apartment management. And I was like, huh, this sounds interesting. And a guy that was doing uh, loans at the place California did it, was doing really well. So it just always been to me. And then, so started working for this guy that owned a, a large portfolio of apartments, was as a regional manager kind of thing. And fairly quickly grew up or promoted up into being the general manager of the whole company. And so we would, we owned a few thousand units, anywhere from three to 5,000 units to buy and sell that I would oversee, do the due diligence when we'd buy a property, oversee the daily operations, the rehabs and all that, and then uh, help with the, the due diligence when we were selling stuff. And, and I would see over and over these, these settlement statements and these brokers getting paid more than I was making all year long on one deal. And I was like, man, I'm on the wrong side of this end of this deal. With that owner's blessing, we got my real estate license or actually transferred from California to Oklahoma and started selling apartments. And at one point, another broker got mad that I was doing apartment business and working for him. And they said, it's not fair. He's seen all the transactions and trying to sell apartments. So he told me I need to pick one or the other. And it's hard going from a nice salary job to commission only unknown. It was a really hard decision at the time, but I did it. And it, that's the best thing I've ever done is, is yeah. I love this business. One of the things I want to focus on with this podcast is maybe helping just thinking about how I got in and the challenges that I faced sounds to me, it sounds like you did it the right way and you went and worked for somebody else. And so do you, I guess my question is, do you think that having gone and worked for a management company gave you an edge when you got into the brokerage practice or how, maybe how did that help you? Absolutely. And in fact, the one thing I did do wrong is that when I did switch over to the brokerage side, I didn't go work for a team or work under somebody. I went to a small shop and just started doing my own thing. And so I had no connections, no, nobody showing me what to do. So what I really used was that experience. And when I'd talk to owners, I'd say, look, I've been in your shoes. I know what you're going through. I, I can speak your language. And that helped, excuse me, it helped me a lot. Really just gain credibility when I otherwise had none because I was brand new to the brokerage side. So it opened up some doors for me. And the first transaction I sold or the first large transaction, hundred plus units was, was for my old boss. And he gave me that first opportunity, which most people probably wouldn't have when I was that young and that new. And that allowed How me. How old were you? How old were you when all this was happening? And see, it had been 2006, I think. So I'd been 26. Awesome. Yeah. Pretty young, pretty new. And sold that property. I think it was 120 units. And once you get one, it's easier to do others. People see you as a somebody that's viable when you're doing transactions and help me. And so I started out at a smaller shop. I say a smaller shop it was a Coldwell Banker commercial, but just locally here. And then started doing some transactions. And then the largest commercial estate company in Oklahoma, but but only to Oklahoma, had reached out and they had a big property management arm. They did a lot of receiverships, which was attractive because it was 2000. At this point, it was 2008. 
and the, the market was tanking. And yeah, so I went over there and, and it was good timing because they, like I said, they did a lot of receiverships and man, I, I sold a lot of foreclosed properties and it really gave me kind of some good experience. And it was a great company that I worked for then the local company and stayed there for 13 years before coming to Capstone. Yeah. Yeah, I had a hand in, in bringing you over. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I, I, I would say if, if it wasn't for Massimo, if it wasn't for for you, I would have never, I would have never came to, you know, would have never even known about Capstone. I shouldn't say I would have never known about it but yeah, at some point, but I would have never at least been introduced in the way I was. So sure. yeah, you definitely got me here. Yeah, no, we've, so just for the audience, I guess we've known each other since what, like 2016 or something? Yeah, you were, yeah, you were one of the first guys that, that I coached. Yeah. And so I had been a client on and on or on and off of the Massimo group and David was my coach and he was great. He, I think you're actually my coach as we were changing yeah. flags, so to speak, from our pre-shop to the, to Capitol. You, you were, had just done it, I think. Cause okay. I can't remember if you were at the other one or if it was right when you did. Maybe I think it was just right when, when you did. did it. Yeah. And I was like, Hey man, come on over. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, like I tell people all the time, and I'm not saying it because I'm on here in front of you, but it, it was, well, I wish I'd have done it many years earlier. Again, I love my old company. I still talk to them. They're great people, tremendous amount of respect for them. But it's just, you know, the apartment industry is a national business, right? And when you're a local shop, I'd go into pitch listings and I'd have that one objection I have to go overcome is, and who are you guys again? Yeah. And so now having the, you know, coast to coast offices, it, it just really opens up that network. People understand who we are and we're growing like crazy. Yeah. And that's a steep hill to climb, especially when you're not part of a team, but yeah, having a, a larger brand yeah, um, is helpful. So I guess thinking about your real estate career, both from brokerage and maybe on the investment side, I don't know, what are your, what are some tidbits or takeaways or pieces of advice that you might offer folks either you know, getting started or mid-career? Some of the lessons that you've learned, maybe. Yeah. On the, not the investment side, because I always treat that a little different, but the brokerage side, the things I wish I would have done different are, are very clear. I wish I would have either started under somebody or on a team. I spent at least 13 years, 12, 13 years grinding on my own. And and look, and I, I, I'm very blessed. I did well, but it wasn't until I started a team that my income just started really dramatically increasing. Cause I've been grinding. Do you think that the, I, cause I know for myself in retrospect, I didn't want to work under somebody cause my ego wouldn't let me. Do you think it was your ego that got in the way? No, I think I just don't any different. Right. That's fair. I didn't think anybody, I mean, nobody had ever told me that was <laughs> a possibility. And back then there weren't a lot of quote unquote teams right now. It's like, everybody's on a team. You know what I mean? If you're yeah. not on a team now, you're, you're likely not producing near as much, you know, it, it teams just dramatically outproduce individuals. But back then, most people weren't on teams. It was one-offs. I mean, there were a couple teams out there, but mostly one-offs and yeah. And, and, and it was a very different market back then too. I remember it's, it's crazy because I'm not this old, but it feels like it. Data used to rule, right? Now you have CoStar, Crexy, Yardy, and all these things that, that have all the data at your fingertips. We never had that. I, I remember I literally had a spiral or a three ring binder and I had property pages with property information. That was just all stuff I had gathered, like staying late at night, literally yeah. long nights, burning a candle, researching properties, their county records and things like that. 
And it was because I had that data and most others didn't, I was a market authority. Now, yeah, everybody has access to that. So you got to set yourself apart in different ways, but still definitely being on a team, hands down. And, and if you can find somebody to work under, that's the best way. They're going to keep you from making so many mistakes and, and just doing things the right way. And then I think somebody that's mid-career, get a coach. I'm, I'm a firm believer in, in, in getting coached. It's, it, you just, you've got people you can bounce ideas from that. One of the big benefits of having a coach too, is they're coaching multiple other people. Then they see what's going on in other markets. They see what's working. What isn't they, they, they coach up kind of usually a, a big audience of people and they can take bits and pieces and share that with you. And that kind of information is just invaluable. Yeah. That's one of the, the, the benefits and curses of, um, real estate brokerage, probably whether it's residential or, or commercial is that. The blessing is that nobody's going to tell you what to do, but the curse also is that nobody's going to tell you what to do. Yeah. You got to uh, do it. It's up to you. Yeah. And so it's like you either, to your point about coaching, you either go figure it out yourself or you have a team, uh, or you hire somebody that helps you shortcut that. So yeah. In fact, I told a guy today, I interviewed a guy, uh, super excited because we're adding an, an experienced guy next week. And then I think I just interviewed a junior guy and he's not junior, but junior to this business. Yeah. Um, and I told him, I said, look, there's two main characteristics I look for when hiring a, like a junior broker, somebody new. I said, one, you got to have integrity, just plain and simple. People got to trust you. We're dealing with lots of dollars worth of properties and they've got to trust you. Two, you've got to have a strong work ethic. If somebody's got good integrity and that integrity encompasses a lot of different things, but they have good integrity, they're a good person and they have a strong work ethic. I, I can teach in the business. It's, it, this business isn't rocket science. It's, right. it's, it's doing certain things that you know you got to do every day. You may not want to do, but you got to doing it, you know, consistently and reliably. And that's why I told him if he's a good guy and he's got strong work ethic. I'll make him successful. And so I'm excited. It's, it's interesting. I, I called some references after people that I knew him and somebody that he actually worked for. And they were like, David, snatch this guy up. Do not let him go. Don't let somebody else get him. You need to take him. And so nice. I've never had anybody give that kind of a reference. So it's pretty impressive. That's great, man. Um, fingers crossed for you and hopefully yeah. looking forward to meeting him. Yeah. Yeah. This business is, it's not difficult, but it's hard. Yeah. You got to just put the work in and grind. And that's why we've built tools like needle to help shortcut that but even with that you still have to go out and do the hard work of picking up the phone that phone can be heavy sometimes yeah exactly <laughs> that exactly. can it's a good way to put it um back to i'm curious with your initial experience with your previous firm and receivers or what parallels do you see in today's market or and then how do you think I don't know. What do you, what's your crystal ball telling you? And then how do you think our business is going to change? Because for so long, it was just put it out there and you'll have 30 tours, 50 tours, 20 offers. And it was nuts. That's yeah. a little bit of an exaggeration for my market. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was the toughest part was just getting control of a deal. Yeah. yeah. It, it was, it got to the point where if you could just put it on the market, you'd sell it for sure. Once you got it, almost, it was, I'd never seen it. I've been doing this almost 20 years and I'd never seen it that, that wild west, but it was fun. If you'd asked me a week ago or two weeks ago, that kind of crystal ball question, 
I would have said, like everybody else, stay alive till 25, right? The, the market's going to be tough. 24 is going to be a slow year and just not very optimistic. The, the recent Fed announcement, I made a, a post, social media post, and I said, did they finally get something right for the first time? They, they finally admitted, okay, it takes a while for what we've put into place to, to really filter through the economy. And so yeah. we've pushed rates far enough. Now let's step back and pause. And I think that's the first thing they, they're doing right. Is, okay, just wait. Let's see how this plays out. And then two, they said, if it continues the trend that it is now, they'll slowly reduce rates, right? And so they've yeah. talked about the soft landing for a long time and trying to do it. And again, there's a lot of things that could change it and they could change on a, on a dime. But if it continues its trajectory and they do what they say they're going to do, we actually could get a soft landing. And if that happens, I think 24 is not going to be a bad year. I think it'll be, it's not going to be a record year, but I think you'll see people sticking their necks out there, transactions getting done. And this is something too, as we're reviewing the year end numbers, look at it. I look at 24, I'm sorry, 23 and the transaction volume was down. It was about 30% of what it was the year before. But keep in mind, the year before was a record year, right? Yeah. I mean, a couple of years of it. So when you compare 23 to, to historical averages, at that point, it was only about 60, 65% of maybe even 70%, somewhere in that ballpark of those average years. So it wasn't like it was a horrible year. It just felt like a horrible year because 21 and, and you know, part of 20 were just awesome years. And so I think it's putting that into perspective. And I've done that when I'm coaching people and they're looking at their pipeline and they're like, oh, this is horrible. I'm only going to make a million dollars. And like, really? Do you hear what you just said? No, it's not a record year, but you're still making an incredible amount of money. It's just a, yeah, it's, it's all in perspective. It was interesting what happened when COVID first set in because everybody, it was like how a lot of this year felt just stop. Like nobody wanted to do anything. And then I remember. I think it was Bo last year at our sales conference, maybe it was even, but he's the people that acted early on in April, May, June, got some incredible opportunities. Absolutely. And I'm wondering if that same thing might hold true here in Q1, Q2 of next year. That's yeah. That's a good way to look at it. Cause I was thinking right now and I was like, I don't know right now people still haven't come down a lot, but it's actually, that's a good way to look at it. Cause if things do start trending back up again, buy low, so high, if they trend up, we're at the bottom. Right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. Cause what happened was the, the government was just pumping money in and then rental rate. I think everybody thought that the whole economy was going to shut down. And then, but what happened is they pumped all this money in and everybody got caught up on the <laughs> bad debt went down. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think too, that's something really interesting. You, you said that about pumping the money in because that, I think that makes it really hard now to try to predict what's going to happen because in the past government didn't step in and just flood money, right? It, it had tools at their disposal, but they didn't take drastic measures like they did during COVID and since then. And you can say that this year should be a good year, be a bad year, whatever it is you think, based on what the Federal Reserve and the government does can change all of it and throw everything out, out the window. Because it used to be you could use historical performance as an indicator going forward. I know that that's contrary to what investment stuff says, but, but you can or used to. But now that they have these unlimited resources, essentially, or tools that they're in their tool belt, 
they can change the economy on a dime and it, it makes it hard to plan or prepare for a future. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. It, the Fed is, I'm not a big fan. Yeah. Not many are. Yeah. Um, well, now we're going to get audited. Hopefully not. We didn't fit. <laughs> so since we're both brokers here, I'm curious. I'd like to hear your take. What do you think the role of a broker is in a transaction? Because a lot of people, sometimes we get a bad name. Sometimes it's deserved. I don't think for you or I, candidly, but I think that there are some, you might say, I don't know, bad actors. I don't know if that's the right word, but so what do you see as your role as a, as a broker? You might say. I think that everybody looks at brokers as transactional, right? They, they think brokers do transactions. Who's granted? That's what we do. That's what we get paid for. But I think great investors, because there's a difference between good investors and great investors, good investors, they, they, they can treat them as transactional. They're good people to work with and that's fine. But great investors realize brokers are more than that. Brokers and, 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 it, and it flips out too is, is great brokers versus good brokers. Great brokers are not just transactional. They're, they're resources. They provide value. I'm constantly thinking, how can I add value to my clients? How can I add value to this transaction? How can I add value to their portfolio? So we'll do stuff like we'll look at, at people's portfolios and do analysis, not just on value, but hey, where are your expenses at? Why, where are you high or low compared to the market? Put, help them put in processes into place. Like right now we're working with, and this is a nonprofit that I'm involved with, but it's still along the lines of what we do. We're working with them and, and spending a pretty decent amount of time really digging into financials and figuring out how to reduce operating expenses. Because it's, it, we see things that, that others don't. We see so many deals and talk to so many owners and find out ways that here are ways that are good and here are ways that are bad to operate stuff. And then that also in our personal investments and things like that, we have experience. And I think as a great broker, you need to use that personal experience and you need to use that kind of intellectual property that you have, that knowledge and share it with your clients. And if you do that, if you're adding value to them throughout their whole investment life cycle, they're going to use you in the transaction, right? And so you may not get paid for all this stuff that you're doing in the interim, but when they go to sell or, or buy a property, who do you think they're going to use? They're using the person that added the most value to them. That's been a resource. That's been a friend. Right. And so I think brokers that only focus on the transaction and don't do anything in between, they're the ones that really give everybody a bad rep because they investors look at them and they say, they're just out for the dollar. They All they care about is themselves. But if you're adding value throughout the, your whole relationship with that person, then they know that you're not in it just to make a buck. You're in it to help them. And I tell my clients all the time, the more successful they are, the more successful I am. And so I want them to succeed. I'm curious, do you think that there is possible? So the cycle, for those of you not in the know, the way commercial real estate works is typically the guy or girl who sold you the deal, more often than not, they'll get at least first crack at the listing. Yeah. Do you think that, or maybe what do you think are the best ways to, to break that cycle, especially as maybe somebody new breaking in or somebody who's just been plugging away and doesn't, hasn't been able to break some of those bonds? Yeah, I, I think doing what I just said, because if you're new, if everybody only sold their properties to people that bought it from, nobody knew to ever get any business. I think it's going in and adding those values or adding that value to that client and Knowing that, hey, I've never worked with this person, but if I can see a way that I can help them and just help them build their portfolio, help them be more profitable, help them streamline something, 
anything that you can do to add value, like I said, then you're becoming a resource to that person. And by doing that, and yes, yeah, so let's say you're doing that and the broker that sold them the deal, they sold it to them and they're transactional and they're just on to the next one. Or they're just focused on nothing but transactions. Who do you think that guy's going to end up using when it comes time to sell, right? Who's yeah. been in front of them? Who's been helping them? And I think anybody that's new to the business, you, you don't make money doing it, but go out there and try to help out your, help out the, the owners as much as you can and really see what you can do to add value. And it, it'll pay dividends in the end. It just takes a little time. Yeah. So for everybody's edification, you, what are the markets that you cover? So mostly Oklahoma, but we also cover the surrounding area. So Arkansas, parts of Missouri, Southern Kansas, like Wichita. And then we work with our Texas team to, on some, on a few things, but, mm-hmm. but for the most part, Oklahoma, driving distance from Oklahoma City or Tulsa. Yeah. I'm curious, what are the best deals that you've seen done either probably on behalf of your clients? Do you have any that you're like, man, that was a killer deal that nobody could see the forest through the trees? Yeah, I think I'm trying to think of the best deals past or what I think are going to be some of the best deals. The first one I always think of when I think of the best deals, isn't it 80s vintage B class or C class properties in B class areas with a mom and pop owner that are tired and want to sell it for 75% of the value. And that, and that what most people call in one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I hear it all done. I think people have got to be, think outside of the box because right now we're at, at least what I see in here is buyers think sellers are distressed. They think, oh, everybody's hurting or everybody's loans are due and everybody right. has to get out. And it's, we're not seeing that yet. We're, there are people that are hurting, but they're maintaining, they're trying to get by. And just like in 08, lenders are pretend and extend and, and just letting it go. And I think you'll see the hammer drop on some of those. And so I think some of the better opportunities are going to be ones that are financially distressed and not yeah. physically distressed. Yeah. I think it's the ones where the sellers were just neglecting it or got way over levered or the rate just. So we've spent a good amount of time this year focusing on like floating rate debt because the thought was, okay. Your rate has gone from three and a half to eight and a half. Um, would you like to have a conversation? And you try and soft sell that as much as you can, but we've gotten very little traction off of that. I'm wondering if you've had better luck. <laughs> no, not at all. And again, even the guys that coach all over, none of them are saying that. People are maintaining, they're holding on. And there's only so long you can hold on, but I think mm-hmm. they see that there's light at the end of the tunnel. And so especially like syndicators, those are generally the ones that, you know, if they have a capital call, they have a hard time getting it. When syndicators that are raising equity, $25,000, $50,000 at a time, because right. those kind of investors don't have the capital to put up extra money just on a phone call. And so they're just, they're maintaining, trying to get by, trying to get by. But at some point, those investors are going to say, hey, enough's enough. And yeah. that hammer may fall. But so far, we're just not seeing it yet. And I know several syndicators that, they're funding deals themselves, so they don't have to ask investors. And and, and some have the, the pockets to do that, some don't. But I, I, I do know this, that over the last several years, people have gotten very lucky, right? People have bought marginal deals, right? Look at that, I'm like, I can't believe they're paying that. And, and, and timing was right. And a year and a half later, they sold it and got a good profit. And so I think people got a little overconfident thinking, For sure. I, I did that two times already. I can keep doing this forever. Like the first year I got in the brokerage business, I, I made really good money. And I was like, man, this is great. I'm going to do this forever. And then 2008 came and I was like, oh, I guess it doesn't happen like that forever. <laughs> yeah. it, the investors or uh, syndicators had the same kind of mindset. It's just going to keep happening. 
And now they're, now they're sitting on properties and they're like, oh, I got to operate this thing. And they don't have the experience. And those are the ones that I'm, I'm hearing from that are a little worried, but they're still, they're maintaining. I think that's the best way to put yeah. it. They're holding on and hopeful that there's light at the end of the tunnel. But I think if 24, I think if rates didn't go down and it didn't loosen up, I do think we'd see a lot of distress coming at some point during 24. Yeah. On a separate but related subject. I don't know about you, but when I hear, when I'm going through and making my buyer calls, my listing lab calls, and I get somebody on the line and they're like, I'm sorry, which deal is that? I just look at so many deals, <laughs> but I almost, first of all, that makes my blood boil. And second of all, I almost immediately write them off as yeah. you're just, you're kicking tires on everything out there and you're just it's, not real on it. The ones that I think that, that are legitimately underwriting a lot of deals, but selectively are the ones that they have criteria. They can narrow it down real quickly and say, okay, hey, is this in our box or not? And, right. and those guys, and I guess my point is like, you can do volume, but then the ones you're calling on, you should remember. So uh, I, I agree. I, I don't know. How many deals did you have to underwrite in a day to not remember a deal you called on? It oh, I look at so many deals. It's click. I immediately wanted to hang up on them. Yeah. I give them the benefit of the doubt, but. So looking at these list of questions, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned over your career, Dave? Yeah, that's so why you said it a second ago, not in a book or cover. And especially back to, again, I keep talking like I'm old, I'm not, but a long time ago, people dressed different, right? People dressed up, business people wore suits and ties and different things like that. And I used to wear a suit and tie every day, even yeah. three-piece suit. Yeah, me too. I, now I, I have a sweater hoodie on. Yeah, you look like a tech guy now. <laughs> Mom, no way. I had to tell you that earlier. So I remember one time, and this was pretty early in my career, I had a guy call me and I had a listing in this uh, town that was a small town, about an hour and a half north of, of where I'm at. And and I drove all the way up there to show this property. I pull up and the guy's driving a beat up Honda Passport, has cut off jeans and dirty company t-shirt and tennis shoes that are dirty. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I just wasted my whole day. This guy probably can't even buy a house, let alone an apartment complex. And Long story short is not only did he close on that or didn't close on that property, he went, he asked me to find another one in that same market because that one was too small, but we sold on that. We closed on that one and I can't, I've lost count of how many deals I've done with him since then. And not only that, he's become one of my best friends. He was the best man in my wedding. And, awesome. and my initially I thought, yeah, this guy can't even buy anything. And so you just, you can't judge a book by their cover. Usually you can tell when you talk to someone, that's the, the, the only kind of caveat to that is you can't tell someone has money or not by looking at them. But you can tell if they know the apartment business pretty quickly talking to them. Yep. I had a guy ask me one time for a rent row, like R-O-W. Can you send me the rent row? <laughs> and I wanted to think, I was like Scooby-Doo on the phone or something, but yeah. was, you just didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I was, we had a guy show up one time. We were selling a real rough sort of deal. And I, I think he flew into town. But then he didn't have an ID to rent a car. So I think he had to Uber. I don't know. We've had some more stories like that where it's just <laughs> like, what are you actually doing? <laughs> that would be fun. I've never had that happen to show up in an Uber to tour a property. <laughs> or we've had guys call us. Oh, I used to live in that building and just wants to talk to you for hours about that and positions himself as though he's a real estate investor. But. If not, and so those that you put 
a note in the caller ID. Uh, <laughs> Do not answer. <laughs> yeah, you may not want to answer the call. I don't know. That's funny. Everyone's while I have a call pop up, but it says the first name and it says, do not answer. You're and right. I'm always like, why did I do that for that one? But I don't answer because I just trust that I did it for a reason. Yeah. Or sometimes I was going and doing some land prospecting and the, the guy lost his, he called, he returned my call and then he figured out that I was a broker and that I was prospecting. I do have developers who would love to buy that site that he had. It was like he had a hundred acres or something like that. So yeah. they would and you brokers are just calling me all the time. This one just hung up. And so I was like, yeah. call Kevin, I have a hot lead for you. Call <laughs> this guy. I try and we burn up the phones. And so it's like you build a Connecticut and listen, I'm just trying to do my job, man. I'm yeah. not trying to harass you. I'm just trying to see if you are interested in buying or selling any real estate. I'm trying to make you money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I think is cool about our business. Though, is really guys that are afraid to pick up the phone. I tell them like, look, once you get this through your head, like people, like good investors just say, good and great. They want to talk to you. Yeah. You got those cases like that, that they're just not normal. But for the most part, investors want to talk to brokers, knowledgeable brokers. They want to mm -hmm. know what's going on. And so once they find out, you know what you're talking about, they're easy to get a hold of and they'll call you. I mean, really, uh, fact, I think, I think you're one of the people that, that helped me understand that of being a good broker, you're a fountain of knowledge and they want to hear from you. Yeah. We take it. We take for granted the information we know we're talking to owners on a daily basis, looking at deals all the time. There, there's again, it's that intellectual property that we have and we know that that is valuable. And people want to hear from it. I tell brokers all the time, like, like when you know you've made it or not, I don't want to say made it, you're knowledgeable, you're a market expert. When you have appraisers and bankers calling you, almost every yeah. apartment property in our market, if there's an appraisal being done, I hear about it because appraisers call me, right? And that, and I'm happy to help. So many, there's sure. so many brokers, at least the appraisers tell me, there's so many brokers that just refuse to help them, won't return their calls, won't share information. I'm like, why? I'll help them all I can. And then in return, they help me if I need something. The fact that they're calling you lets you know that you're, it, the benefit is you're going to know every single deal that's happening in the market, even if it's just a refinance. Yeah. Fringe benefit. Yeah. I get a lot of those calls or emails as well. And I always do my best to help them out because just like you said, if you need to call on them for a favor or help or validation, whatever it is, they're ready, willing, able to do it because you, you help them. So it's a, it's got to be a win. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. What else do you want to talk about? Oh, I was looking at some of these questions you had. Oh, you'd asked about resources and it was, it was, that's what made me earlier to think about all the, just the manual legwork that I used to have to do and digging through stuff. And I wish I still had it because I literally, we used to, so we had this research, it was a, I forget it was called like read or something, which stood for, it was an acronym or something. But anyways, it was a, you had to pay a subscription to be able to go to this office building that had just rooms of file cabinets of property information. And it was mostly appraisers that were members, right? Because again, there, there wasn't CoStar or anything like that. It was like a library. Yeah, it's essentially the library. And, and it just had a bunch of three ring binders with information about transactions. And they finally got it on the internet. So they finally put it on the internet where, it, but it still, it basically looked like when you go pull it up, it looked like the scanned copy of what it was. But it was incredible, right? And I used to be able to go and get information off there and 
uh, again, you, you build an incredible database of just property information. And so I look now and you're asked about some resources and CEL and Associates, Peter Lineman, or PricewaterhouseCoopers, Emerging Trends, the CRE Daily News every day, all that stuff that's just like at our fingertips now just mm-hmm. makes it so much easier to get to. And it, it just, it cracks me up looking back at what, what, what I used to have to do. In fact, when I learned the market, when I got started to, to, or to learn the market, I should say, I built or made index cards or were like, you know what they're called, called the little cards? Yeah. On. Yeah. Like flip uh, cards. Yeah. And I, I would put the name of the property on one side and then I'd put, I think it was year built, number of units, and then I don't think it was owner, it was something else like general, something about it, I think. Anyways, and I used to memorize all the properties and I still to this day, most properties I can tell you if you name a property in a market, I can tell you information on it, but I used to have it like clockworks. I can just spit it out. Yeah, I can do that. The clients loved it. They'd always call me about stuff. I can do like year of construction, unit, generally, I might be off a little bit. Yeah. But usually if there's a store, like I can recount the the ownership history for as long as I've been tracing it. Oh yeah, they own this and then they did this and then they sold it to this person. And that's just stuff that comes with time. Yeah, it is. But well, and that's, I, I tell people why that's valuable. Cause you always got to think of, well, what does that matter? How does that help your client? Well, there's a specific transaction that a guy was looking at buying and, and I was the broker on this deal. So I didn't get help, but it helped me build credibility. He called and said, Hey, I'm looking at buying this property tell me about it. And I was like, sure. I said, look, just so you know, building D has plumbing issues. There's this, there's water that goes into these subterranean units, blah, blah, blah. I said, you're going to have to resolve that. Right. And so he, he took that into account when he underwrote it. And sure enough, after he closed on it, he realized there was problems. He had to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars to remedy it. But he told me, he goes, look, had I not known that I would not have counted for that. And I would not have been able to budget for that. And so I, I tell people like, I know where the skeletons are buried on most properties and what problems they have and what they don't. That's fundamental yeah. market knowledge that you're not going to find on any website somewhere. What are some common things, I guess, maybe regardless of vintage that you have to look out for, or just know automatically, like if you see a vintage or things like that, at least yeah. in your market. Yeah. And I think your market and my market's very similar. I think that, yeah, um, I think they are too. Just in, in total price per unit returns and all that. You guys probably have some older properties just because further east you go, the older properties get. So we had Oklahoma City had a huge building boom in the 60s and 70s. And so roughly 71% of our, our inventory was built between 1960 and call it 1985. And then between 85 and early 2000s, there was only about 6% of our inventory that was built. And so then after about 2005, somewhere in there, we started building again and it ramped up recently. And so that's where I think it's about 18% of our inventory is, is in that kind of that, that area. And it's, you, I get the point of that is those older vintage properties, there's just certain things on them you got to look for. A lot of owners just stay away from boiler chillers. It's just a no-go, right? Don't want to do boiler and chiller. If you do, I, I, budget in for it. I mean, you're going to have a fun problem. story for you about boiler chillers. So we had this deal listed and I think it was before you and I met, but this woman had, she was a house flipper and she had bought 70 units here in Cincinnati. And I don't think she ever came to saw it or, or came to see it or if she did, it was very rarely. And it had a master boiler chiller and the chiller went out. And so it had air handlers in each unit, the bedroom and the living rooms each had air handlers. And it was, when it was built, it was really nice. It was a really nice building, but it had just fallen into disrepair. So she goes to eBay 
and buys a chiller for 30 grand, gets it shipped to the site only to figure out that it won't work. It doesn't fit or whatever. <laughs> Oops. Like, like, what are you doing? Why not hire a professional? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Penny wise and pound foolish. That's for sure. But anyway, though, continue. Yeah. There's any other things like aluminum wiring. I'm sure. Yeah. You guys probably have a lot of that on older properties. Yeah. It, it's just, you can't get a Fannie Freddie loan or if you do, they're going to have, they're going to make you escrow to remedy that. And, so um, what? I think of aluminum wiring as being some just from the seventies. Is that yeah. your really old? Not murder older than the seventies. I and mean, it's in the sixties. You'll get some in the early seventies, but maybe late sixties. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's right late. around that time. I mean, I'm sure there's an exact date, but I don't know, but it's yeah. right around that time that when they started using copper more and those are definitely, they stay away from clay pipes, sewer pipes that, that you don't have any clay pipes. No, it's all cast iron for us. Yeah, they had a lot of older properties that would have clay pipes and roots just wow. get into the, like, they fall apart. Yeah. Roots get into it, they fall apart, and they're a mess. Yeah. And just knowing stuff like that, knowing that what vintage would have what look for it. Old, in a stab block and Federal Pacific. Federal Pacific, Pacific, yeah. Yeah. Have you ever heard of a deal burning down from Federal Pacific, though? No. I, I feel like that's an old wives' tale, but. And I've got, I have a lake house, and it has an old, I can't remember which one it was. But it was, it's one of them that is known for burning down. And so I need to get replaced. But I was told my wife was like, that would be too bad to burn down. I'd get a build new one. <laughs> give me your house. Yeah. Get you, make sure no one's there. Yeah. We're not in it most of the time. So yeah, I do need to replace it though. Cause it, it looks pretty old and scary. Yeah. They yeah, need to have everything ground, things like that. Yeah. Let's see. So if people are interested in getting in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, just they, they call me on my cell phone. I make it clear my cell phone's on my LinkedIn. I mean, some people always try to not keep their information public. I'm like, that's how we make money. People need to reach us. Yeah. 405 And yeah, I've been a lot more active on LinkedIn lately. So I'm on there and hopefully you will start a podcast soon yeah. go after talking to you. David Dershner, the leading broker in Oklahoma for yep. any of your multifamily needs. The man. In fact, I'll send you a video of uh, of George Bush saying that. That's awesome. And a hell of a great guy, too. <laughs> Let's see. I don't think I have anything else. I don't know. I think this was a good, a good, yeah, good go right. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I See, that's I look forward to doing stuff like this, too, just because it's fun. Catching up, talking, and yeah. conversational. And just yeah, I hope not to be as, like, light hungover as I am today. I you thought I was like going to, what's that? You don't look like it. You can't tell. Well, that's good. Yeah. You have hiding it. <laughs> I, I, really I just look to... generally terrible all the time. <laughs> yeah. If I can find it, I am going to send you this video. It's, it says, Jordan, it looks just like him. It yeah. was a, went to a IMN conference and he was there. Somebody had him at a booth to attract people in. Great. And, and so, yeah, I got a picture and he's, he's like, David Dursar, my man, he's the man in Oklahoma, Mookie family. You, yeah. It's hilarious. Like, I'll awesome. find it and send it to you. Yeah. Cool. I think we're going to stockpile a couple of these and then release them. I don't know, coming up, but I'll let you know as soon as it is, I'll send yeah. it to you and we'll yeah. figure it out. We'll take it from there, man. I have Mo put up some social media stuff and get it sent out. I, you know that it, you know Mo is no. She's the same social. She's the social media lady that does Bob's knuckles and then rods oh. and then I think strip mall guy or somebody else. But so I've hired her to start doing my social media stuff and 
that's why I've been a lot more active on there. It's, it's, it's her putting stuff on there, but mm, that's it's, good. That's it's worthwhile because I haven't had the time to do it. I've tried for years to be more active, and and I'm not. It's just <laughs> there's only so much in the day that you can do. Like, yeah. so I, having the podcast will help with with content too, just because you can create yeah. so much content from one podcast. I mean, yeah, this I had the timer on, and we're at 44 minutes right now, so. And the shorts, the JPEGs, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that you'd yeah. be able to create from it are awesome. Yeah. Cool, man. I all appreciate right. you. Me on. This Absolutely. is your first one. Yeah. Have a wonderful day. See you. All right. Bye.